gather 10 Christians together and ask them what they think about what worship is and what makes it good and what we should do in it. And you'll get 10 different answers and almost all of it will boil down to something man-centered and will be based almost entirely on some subjective principle. Well, that's not the angle the scriptures take. In fact, scripture emphatically teaches that worship is God-centered and carefully regulated by scripture. So tonight, as we move to the interpretation of the second commandment, we're going to explain the meaning of this commandment and show its true application, which is to the worship of God. So stay tuned with us tonight on Sinners and Saints. In an age of moral bankruptcy, political sleaze, theological confusion, and aimless religion in a mindless church, we're addressing the need for a Bible-based, intellectually rigorous, 21st century Christian faith. This is Sinners and Saints. Theology with an Edge. Welcome to Sinners and Saints tonight. We want to thank you for joining us. We're continuing on in our series on the Ten Commandments, talking about their true interpretation and then their contemporary application to God's people. As, as usual, joining us for tonight's discussion is Reverend Moses Jambazian from Pasadena United Reformed Church and Reverend Adam Kalustian from Ontario United Reformed Church. And I'm John Sautel, church planter in Walnut, California. Tonight we're going to take up the second commandment and its application, but since eight out of ten Christians can't even identify what the ten commandments are, I think I'm going to begin tonight with uh, just reading the second commandment, which says, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generation of them that hate me and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. That's the second commandment. And tonight, as we promised, we're going to talk about its application to worship. Before we break it down in terms of its application to worship, what does this commandment teach? Well, I think, first of all, when you analyze the second commandment, you see it's broken down into two main sections. The first is the command itself, and then the second section is, For I, the Lord your God, and a jealous God, and so, for, so on and so forth. And the first part of this commandment is very easy to understand in its original context, and I will flesh it out more a little bit in terms of application uh, in a later show you know, to us today. But clearly, Israel was being forbidden from making and worshiping idols and images, physical things that they could see to represent their God. I mean, they looked around them at the pagan nations, and all of them had different kinds of idols that they constructed to represent the so-called deities that they worshipped, and Israel was told that they may not represent the Lord in that way at all. And that's important to remember, because as we spoke last time, this is not a combination with you shall have no other gods before me. It's not saying that you cannot have other idol gods. This is saying a separate thing. It's saying that the one true God, me, Yahweh, Jehovah, cannot be worshipped in the way that other gods are worshipped, through idols whereby you seek to have contact with me through something physical rather than through the spirit that I have given. Yeah, the, the principal issue here with this, is, this command is that we are prohibited from trying to figure out some sort of uh, physical or objective or visual intermediary which helps us approach God. 
that's what all the other nations did. That was the argument for them, is they never really believed that those little images were actually the God himself, but it was uh, an intermediary. It was a way to approach God through that or to make them think more about that God. God clearly prohibits that. It says, you, you can't capture me in that way. It's also believed by a lot of the anthropologists who study this that it was meant to be a way of getting the God's power concentrated in a particular area and then through that being able to somehow gain access to him where he's forced to acknowledge the gifts you bring and bring you somewhere somewhere tangible for you to bring things to him and thereby force him to respond to you. And God says, no, I come to you of my will graciously and don't play these games trying to get a hold of me your way. That's right. You can't manipulate the true God. The true God is a God of control and providence and lordship over all of the creation. He will not be manipulated by these useless tools. And, and he will appear to us where he wants to. That's the whole point of, for instance, the dwelling above the cherubim. It's empty. There's no representation there. God comes there when he wants to. Deuteronomy 12 talks about God sovereignly putting his name where he determines he will put it. So we're not going to be able to constrain God and force him to be at our beck and call. He will come to us, uh, and we will approach him on the terms that he says and the terms that he prescribes. And so, he's- Go ahead. And he's also really upset about the thought of anyone trying this other than the way he's warranted. Because he says this is not a threat just to the individual who sins, but its entire family is going to be involved in this curse. Well, that or, brings us into the second part of the commandment, as Adam pointed out. That how do we take this whole thing that uh, God will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the third and fourth generation? Well, you, if you go back a couple of shows, we talked about when we approach the Ten Commandments, it's important for us to be sensitive to the fact that they were given at a particular time in redemptive history to a particular people. This was given as a covenant code, really, to the nation of Israel. So when we read in the Ten Commandments here, in the Second Commandment, that I will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but show my love to thousands those who love me and keep my commandments. We have to remember that the punishment for idolatry of which the Lord is speaking, punishment of you know visiting the people with destitution and famine and violence and the sword of the foreign nations, that punishment would come to the nation of Israel as the old covenant people of God. So that if the early generations and the continuing generations of Israelites forsook this commandment and actually made images to supposedly represent God and worship them and to manipulate him, then God would pour out his wrath physically, politically, socially on the Israelite people of that time. So, if we could boil it down to this, this is not necessarily uh, a prescription for how God is going to deal with all the nations at this particular time or even his church. It was of a limited, redemptive, historical application to the nation of Israel prior to the coming of Christ. But the enduring part of this command is that we still must not image God in any way or approach him in any way or worship him in any way that he has not commanded. When we come back after the break, we're going to talk about some of the applications now of this commandment to our worship. So stay tuned with us on Sinners and Saints. There is no greater joy in the Christian's life than to worship God according to his word, and there is nowhere better in the San Gabriel Valley to do this than at the Pasadena United Reformed Church. So come join us this Sunday at 9 a.m. and at 6 p.m. at 226 West Colorado Boulevard in Arcadia. You can call us at 866-99-UNITED or look us up on the web at sinnersaint.org. This is Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. Are you looking for a church that values the Word of God and the rediscovery of its riches in the Protestant Reformation? 
Hi, I'm Pastor Adam Kalusti, and I want to invite you to join us at the Ontario United Reformed Church. We worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. and 5.30 p.m. Take the Euclid Avenue exit off the 60 freeway, go north one block to Philadelphia Street, turn right, and you'll see us. That's the Ontario United Reformed Church, 866-99-UNITED. All right, we're back here after the break tonight on Sinners and Saints, and we are talking about uh, the Second Commandment, and we are promising to move forward after the interpretation into its ac- actual application to a number of contemporary worship issues. But uh, we wanted to also give the positive side uh, that we were covering here. We're talking about God visiting the iniquity of the fathers uh, to the third and fourth generation. What is the positive aspect of that? We said it doesn't necessarily imply today that there is an actual retribution upon uh, generations of people because uh, the fathers violated it, but what does it positively tell us? When you read, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, you are not supposed to think, oh, if the nation today disobeys God and shows idols, he will punish us economically and politically. You are not supposed to think that if my family three or four generations ago was sinning, then God is going to visit that sin on me and in my life, and I have this sort of curse hanging over me. You hear a lot of people talking like that today. That's not what we're supposed to think. We're supposed to understand that the Lord God, seeing Israel's idolatry and disobedience to this second commandment, did already pour out on that covenant nation his sanctions for that kind of disobedience, his punishment. He cut them off as the people of God. Now listen, what does that mean for us today? We are supposed to look at what happened to Israel and recognize in our own lives the kind of idolatry and false worship that we have in our thoughts and words and actions and see that what we deserve ultimately is not only that kind of punishment, but the eternal punishment of hell. And that drives us to our knees fleeing to Christ, and then also repenting from false worship. But you got to get this idea out of your head that you expect some tangible, visible curse in your life. We are not Old Covenant Israel to whom this code of laws was given in that form. Okay, so with that clarification in mind, let's move now to talk about its application to worship. And classically, uh, Protestants at least have looked at the second commandment and have argued from there that this commandment imply, applies not just to the making of images, but to the very way in which we worship God. And a principle that's been formulated is called the regulative principle of worship, which says we may not worship God in any other way than he is commanded in his word. Well, let me show you how we get to that. Just some people say, well, now you say, yeah, we may not worship God in any way. In Where does the second commandment say that? Yeah, That's what they're going to come back right. to. Right. All it talks about is images and idolatry, and you're bringing all this extra information to Well, let me explain. As we've understood it, God, in his infinite wisdom, he takes one of the most extreme and gross examples of false worship, which is making an idol and using it to represent him and manipulate him and so-called worship him. He uses that extreme gross example to represent the principle that he will not be worshipped except how he desires to be worshipped. So we are the ones who are being short-sighted if we limit this commandment only to be speaking about images and idolatry. What it shows is the character of God that he will only be worshipped how he will be commanded. He's just using the most extreme kind of false worship to represent that principle here. Also keep in mind the Ten Commandments are a... A summary of the general uh, laws that God is giving. And what you can see as you continue reading in Exodus and Leviticus is just how much God demands precision 
in approaching Kim and limits it to just a handful of people whose lives are spent dedicated to being trained in the right way of approaching God. And even when those men approach God using what God has given, but at the wrong time they get killed, let alone anyone not trained. So we really have to take seriously, God will not be approached just as any man desires, but only as he commands. Let me uh, tell you how it's been worded in in a very famous Protestant confession. The Westminster Larger Catechism says, uh, the question is, what are the duties required in the second commandment? And the answer is, the duties required in the second commandment are the receiving, observing, and keeping pure and entire all such religious worship and ordinances as God has instituted in his word. So, you see, it clearly makes the connection between this commandment and how we worship together as Christians on the Lord's Day. And I, and I know you're going to ask the question, what, okay, fine, that's what the Westminster Confession says, or maybe even the Heidelberg says the same thing. Where do we prove this out from Scripture? Okay, but hold on a minute. I want us to be very clear about what we're saying the regulative principle of worship is. Because, you know, some of you are saying, well, yeah, I agree, God ought to be worshipped the way that he wants. But there's a difference between what we are saying the regulative principle of worship is and that comment, God should be worshipped however he wants. Let me just contrast what we believe God is saying here with some other traditions. We are saying that the only acceptable way to worship God is to see how he says he ought to be worshipped in the scripture and then to follow it. Now, some groups will say, well, you can basically worship God any way that you want as long as he doesn't give a specific commandment against something that you're doing. Now, you see the difference there? One group says, well, you can kind of do whatever you want as long as he doesn't forbid something specifically. We're saying, no, 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 no. You can't do whatever you want. You may only do what he expressly commands in his word. Otherwise, that is a form of idolatry. Let me give you an example. Uh, Let's just say I was at my cousin's uh, baptismal service the other day, and I noticed that they had some beautiful candles burning in the midst of the service, and they lit some incense that just really smelled heavenly. It was such a beautiful ceremony. So I come back to my pastor and say, Pastor, you know, why don't we do this? I'm not saying we have to do it every Sunday. But wouldn't it be nice to fill the sanctuary with the aromas of heaven? It would help my worship so much. And the pastor could respond one of two ways. He could say, well, because the Bible doesn't anywhere expressly forbid the use of candles, then we're free to do it if it seems beneficial, if it seems edifying to the congregation. You were blessed by it? Right. But we say no. It's not a question of what only does the Scripture forbid. In order to introduce something into the worship of God, you will have to show me in the Scripture where God commands that it be done, where he prescribes expressly that it may be done so that we know it is pleasing to him. Okay, stay, stay right where you're at. When we come back from the break, we're going to discuss some of the biblical principles and how this applies specifically to our worship uh, each Sunday. Back in a minute. Americans are known for their independence and self-reliance. We take little stock in other people's opinions. Americans want to examine and form our own conclusions about everything, and if something isn't to our liking, we'll fix it. These characteristics have served us well in casting off monarchies and taming the wild frontier. But are they really the best qualities for building Christ's church? At Grace Evangelical Church, we think one thing our culture doesn't need to reinvent are the tried and tested truths of Orthodox Christianity. We take delight in the faith of our fathers, in the biblical truths captured by the three forms of unity. We believe the truths of the Reformation gospel of justification by faith alone are the only solution for the multitude of problems that face America today. 
we invite you to come worship with us at Grace Evangelical Church. For more information, you may contact us at area code 310-782-7019. That's 310-782-7019. All right, as promised, we're back after the break here. We're talking about the second commandment tonight and its application now to the public worship of God's people. When we left, we were talking about this regulative principle that flows out of uh, the second commandment that we may worship God in no other way than he's commanded in his word. We said that's not just some Protestant uh, principle uh, just sort of grabbed out of the sky, but it's out of the scriptures. And so some scripture texts which support that. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 30. God says, Take heed to yourself that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? And I will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord in that way. See, God is saying here, you, you don't just go taking an opinion poll or go ask the local uh, religious assemblies how they're doing it and then say, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Why don't we bring that into our worship? God says, you shall not worship in any way. Then I have commanded you, oh, don't John, add or subtract. No, no, somebody's going to say to that, oh, yeah, those religious assemblies, but that's because those religious assemblies are following false gods. I mean, you... No, no, no. Verse 32, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away. God is very clear about the principle in view when worship comes into picture. In Leviticus, Nadab and Abihu, two of the four sons of Aaron, so they're serving as priests, they take their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died there before the Lord. Here you have people who are actually using things that God has given them and commanded, but not in the manner he had said, and they are killed by God. That expresses how much God takes seriously his name and honor. Yeah, there's nothing in that text that says that these priests were seeking their own service or whatever. No indication that their intention was to present false worship. The problem was they made strange fire. They made a kind of worship using the tools that God had given in a way that he had not commanded, and God consumed them with his anger. So take seriously what's going on here. God is saying, I cannot be approached by your own wisdom, by your own common sense. It can only be as I direct, because you're coming to something you don't understand, and that is holiness and perfection. See, the, again, the principle in this verse is the regular principle, though. He says, uh, they're offering profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. It's not an idea that we've just made up and pulled out of the thin air. It's something that the Bible clearly enunciates, and we are bound to follow that. Otherwise, we will dishonor the Lord. Okay, now notice, I said the Bible, because some of you are saying, oh, you're just reading Old Testament text, and yeah, God was a mean God back then, and, and now things are a lot different in the New Testament. It's the age of the Spirit. We have a lot more freedom and liberty. We can just come to God in any way we want to, as long as it's sincere and in the name of Jesus. But no, the New Testament is very clear about the very same principle. Yeah, Colossians 2, for instance, beginning at verse uh, 20. Let me read you the words of the Apostle Paul. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world. Why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, 
which all refer to things destined to perish with the using, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. What Paul's saying is this. You have introduced things that God has not commanded and called them valuable and thought that they were good religion when in fact they are simply the teachings and the commandments of men. And we're saying that the principle is also true in the New Testament that we ought to follow the commandments of God in our worship. Paul's used the very language almost in the Old Testament. He says these are the opinions and the commandments of men. And then verse 23, he calls it will worship. In other words, that's worship that springs purely and completely out of the subjective human will. Self-made even by sanctified religion. common That's sense. Right. It's self-made religion. Self-made. And, and Jesus himself even quotes Isaiah, and he says, you know, in vain do you worship me, teachings as, teaching as doctrines, the precepts of men. And so here Jesus is saying, this is not an acceptable way of doing it. You cannot worship me, you cannot worship God, apart from what God has said. The wisdom of men, the traditions of men, are of no value, especially because they do inevitably contradict what God has revealed. Yeah, it's hollow, it's vapid, it's useless, it's dishonoring to God to approach him and to worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. So the second commandment, if we bring it back to its principle, is saying we absolutely are bound and required to observe and keep pure all religious worship. Now we'd be remit, we have to mention one other of the main lines of argument in the New Testament for this regulative principle of worship today, and that is the fact that mankind is idolatrous. I mean, it's not just in the New Testament, of course, that started from the beginning, uh, or from the fall when Adam sinned. But the condition of the human race after the fall, and that's certainly true today, is that our hearts are idolatrous. Fundamentally, we are corrupt. We do not desire the pure worship of God. How much the more, then, should we, should we look to the Word of God to prescribe how we ought to worship? Do you, do you really trust yourself? Do you really trust me, John, Moses, anybody in your church to decide the right way to worship God? I hope not, because fundamentally we are idolaters. We need God himself to tell us how we ought to worship him, and we should not feel free to just do whatever we think might please him. We're not trustworthy. I would recommend also that we be in real fear as we read the book of Revelation, because there the apostle John himself is prone to worshiping an angel. And the angel commands him and says, stand up. So here you have an apostle who is unable to rightly distinguish in his own wisdom, and he has to be told not to do things. How much worse we, who are not apostles, we will not be able to do these things of our own wisdom. We must have God's direction, or we will be destroyed as Nadab and Abihu. Hey, we want to thank you for joining us tonight and listening on this discussion on the Second Commandment. Next time, we're going to continue on with our uh, interpretation and application of the Second Commandment, so stay tuned with us. Come back next week and listen again as we talk about how the Second Commandment applies to worship. If you want to learn more about these things, check us out at sinnersaint.org, sinnersaint.org, or call us at 866-99-UNITED. Thanks for listening. Join us next week as we tackle more topics with the truth of God's Word on Sinners and Saints, Theology with an Edge. For more information, call 866-99-UNITED or log on to the web at urcsocal.org. That's 866-99-UNITED.